Thank you for tuning in to Tuolumne Community Baptist Church. I'm George, pastor of the church, and I'm so glad that you're here. This morning we have an interesting subject that God has placed on my heart, and it, it comes from tragedy that I see some of our very own people suffer. And uh, it got me to thinking about how, Lord, how do we pray? How do we pray in certain situations where we don't know what your plan is? We don't know where you're going with this, God. This is so tragic. And then as I was studying, it, it began to change. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about my personal accounts of wrestling with God. So the message has Two titles, you can choose the one you like that fits the best. Lord, how do I pray in the times of really difficult circumstances? Or why have I wrestled with God so much of my life? I hope you enjoy. Tune in. We're going to get started here in just a second. I feel like the Lord's really is doing something interesting in me. This last week, I've been talking with my sister Janice Huckabee via text message. And I knew that she was heading back because of a really a disastrous situation. Her youngest nephew had apparently accidentally shot and killed his fiance while cleaning a gun. It's a devastating situation and, and she is Janice's nature. She said, I gotta go, Tim, bye, I gotta go. And she headed back. What state is she in? Colorado. Colorado. Before she could get there, she got word that her nephew Stephen had shot and killed himself. Before she could get there. And she texts this to me and it, it, it took my wind away. I said, Lord, I don't know how to pray. And that resonated in my spirit. It kind of stuck with me. Of course, thank you, Steve. Yeah. I depend on the, the Holy Spirit to pray, and I began to pray in the Spirit. Because how, how do you pray? It, it's so devastating. But I know that Janice has been an inspiration and a light. I believe his memorial was yesterday. And she'll tell us more or tell me more when she gets back. So as I was working on this, I, I started down a road that I felt the Holy Spirit was leading me. Lord, how do we pray? Well, I remember a story where the disciples asked the very same thing. Teach us to pray, Lord. 
So I started heading down that road, and uh, about half the week went by, and all of a sudden the Lord changed me, and he kind of took a hard left on me. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, Lord, we're, t we're working on praying here. And he says, trust me, this is all, it all ties. And I said, I hope you can tie it together. So I'll let you choose the title of my message. How do we pray? Or why do we wrestle with God? Kind of interesting. All right, Lord. So the disciples, they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And one side of me, I totally get what they were asking. Sometimes I feel the same way. Jesus, how do I pray? Help me. But maybe I started thinking about this and the Lord really impressed on me to look closely into the scripture. And, and I got to tell you, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I, I don't trust things just right away. I got, I got to see the motive. And I started reading the scripture in Luke. And all of a sudden I realized, I said, wait a minute, are these guys asking Jesus to give them some kind of magic words? You know, is, is that what, they're, what they were? Or was it that they really wanted to know how Jesus prayed? In today's world, I find myself thinking, I, I don't know how to pray, particularly in Janice's situation. I typed it back. I said, Janice, I don't know how to I'm lost, but I know that the Holy Spirit knows. So for the next hour or so, I'm going to pray in the Spirit. Because I don't know what to say or what to do. I felt that for the moment as broken as she was feeling. So I went to Luke chapter 11. We know the chapter, it's in Matthew and in Luke on the Lord's Prayer. And this is what I began to read. And it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, and he ceased. And one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And I'm thinking, right on. Good, good. But then it says, as John has taught his disciples. And immediately my way of thinking. I, I realize how interesting this is. The Bible doesn't give us anything about how John taught his disciples to pray. There's nothing in there other than we know that he did teach them. So I started questioning what was really in this disciple's heart when he was asking Jesus to teach them to pray. Were they just trying to keep up with John's disciples? Was that what it was about? Or was it possibly a reflection of their own lives, of where they were at? Where this disciple saw himself? Or was it he just trying to keep up with appearances, like John's disciples? 
Or was he really, did he really have the heart of Jesus and want to know how do we appropriately pray? I didn't have the answer. And Jesus didn't address it. He didn't address it at all. He said, you, you would think if I was Jesus, if I was Jesus, I'd say, well, what is it you're really asking me? Why is it? Is this, is this so you can keep up appearances and be ahead of John and his disciples? Or do you really want to know how to pray? I don't know. But this is what Jesus did say in verse 2. And he said unto them, When you pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, who has sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. It's interesting, you know, because everything that I do in my sermon preparation, I'm pulling offline. You know, Bible, Gateway, I use that a lot. And it's always up-to-date, modern translations. And you can pick any translation you want. If you notice, I got New King James on this one. I mean, I'm sorry, King James Version on this particular passage. But it's interesting, because both in Matthew and in Luke, at least online with the modern day translations, what happened to, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. That wasn't in the original, that wasn't in the original manuscript. It's something that the early church did, it's called a doxology, and the early church, the early Christians in the eastern half of the Roman Empire added to, the, to this, this scripture, this doxology, that for thine is the kingdom and the power. It was their way of thinking they had to end the prayer, giving Father the glory. Well, don't worry if you like that part, because I like it too. And it is giving God the glory. I just wanted to know. It was interesting to me because I started going through all different translations looking for thine as the kingdom and power. Where is it? If you have an older Bible, it's in. But the newer translations, the newer printed versions, it's not. That was all for free. I just thought it was really interesting. But then Jesus tells them how to pray. He gives them this prayer to pray. And I've preached a whole sermon series, you remember, on this and, and broke it down line by line. We're not going to do that today. But in Luke, he went on to say more that I felt was really interesting. Verse 5, it says, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, Lend me three loaves. Go back to that real quick. Notice the first friend is lowercase. The second friend is uppercase. I didn't do that. That's the way it is in the translation. I wanted you to pay attention to that. Verse 6 says, 
For a friend of mine, this is the guy that, uh, speaking, Jesus is telling the story. For a friend of mine is on a journey and has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And verse 7, and he, from within, shall answer and say, Trouble me not, for the door is shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. Think about this statement. The door is shut. And I'm not going to rise. My kids are sleeping. It's midnight. Hmm. But he goes on. Verse 8 it says, I say unto you, comma, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, I wish they had put a but in there. Wouldn't that have made it understandable? He says, though he will not rise and give him, because you are his friend, and yet because of his importunity, He was, he wouldn't stop knocking. Okay? He, he wouldn't go away. His, because he was, to the point, he was annoying him. He, he wasn't going to give up. I'm going to stand here and knock until he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And all of a sudden, I saw it. I saw it. I said, thank you, Jesus, because he is his friend. Are you God's friend? Amen. He was telling these disciples, you got you to be a friend of God. You got to be right with God. You got to be living your life the way you should be living it. You're a friend of God. Does a friend of God go out and do horrible things? He does not. He goes in verse 9, he says, I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Verse 10 says, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and that seeketh findeth. And to him who knocketh it shall be opened. God will be there for you. And he goes on to talk about them. He says, If a son shall ask you, any of you, that is a father. Will he give him a stone? If he asked for bread, would you give him a stone? And if he asked for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Or if he were to ask for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? Of course not. Even you then, being evil, you know how to get good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to give to you. It's interesting how he said he's going he's to give it to the Holy Spirit. How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him? Jesus taught us how to pray in these passages, but I believe there's so much more going on. In this prayer and explanation of this prayer, Jesus is telling us we need to know who we are. 
Are you a friend of God? This brings me to my first point. Now, we've got a couple of visitors here, and I want to make sure you don't get offended. I, I, I preach it like it is. And uh, this particular message going on here forward, it's kind of like I'm getting into your closet and rooting around. You know what I mean? I'm kind of getting into your backyard, digging up your trash, you know, to see what's, what is really back there. But it's all going somewhere. Your world is a reflection of your inner self. It's a reflection of your inner self. Your world. How people see you, that's your world. The people in your world. You are a reflection of your inner self. The way you dress, your home, the condition of your home. Your car. You may be praying for a new car and you can't clean the chicken bones out of the back seat. Come on. How are you taking care of that car? How do you take care of your things? How do you take care of your house? All that belongs to you. I'm telling you, it's an, a reflection, an inner reflection of your inner self. Do you take good care of your stuff? I know you're thinking, no, 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 Pastor. We, we don't be talking about this kind of stuff in church. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Next, you're going to be telling me that I need to make my bed before I come to church. You know, there's this great video. If I, if I had even thought that our equipment would handle it and we had time to set it up, there's this, this Colonel's guy that was at a college commencement speech. And his whole speech was on, if you just get up and make your bed in the morning. It's the first step. Completing the first thing of your day. The first thing that you do, the first thing, you, come, you get up and you make your bed and you make it tight. They train them that way in the military, am I right, Jim? That's the first thing. You make your bed when you get up. And let's say you have an absolutely horrible day. At least when you get home, you're going to have a comfortable bed that's made when you get there. It's a reflection. And we need to start paying attention to our inner selves. Change comes, and it comes from within the inside. It doesn't just happen on the outside. Brings me to point number two. Your world is a reflection of your knowledge. If you knew more, you wouldn't be where you're at right now. I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying, if you're in trouble with some kind of financial situation, maybe your marriage is like, if you knew more, you wouldn't be where you're at. Am I right? It's, it's knowledge. It's, it's, it's what we know. We're all in a learning process. Every one of us. And it's not necessarily an age thing. We are all in constant pursuit of knowledge. But age comes with life experiences. Knowledge is being transmitted through all that we go through. And if you're young, let me give you a little bit, a little hint. Listen to the elders when they're speaking. I say that to all you younger guys sitting here and girls. 
Pay attention to the elders when they speak. So often we think they don't know what I'm going through. Yeah, you might want to listen to my story. Because I know what you're going through. I understand where you're at. And we need to pay attention because knowledge comes. And we need to learn. And yes, when I say your world is a reflection, this has everything to do with how you pray. It is who you are. At least at the particular time. I'm not picking on you. I didn't used to think and pray the way I do today. I had to go through some really rough lessons to get here. We are all born into this world, and it's no wonder that our lives have a reflection of the world. Amen? Amen. I mean, we're born in it. We live in it. We grow up in it. If you think that the media isn't trying to convince you who you are, you're really good because they are trying to convince you that you're supposed to be thinking not the way that you think. We live in the world. We can't help. Our goal is to have a reflection of Christ that can be seen and the change comes from with the inside through Christ. And it brings me to point number three. Your world is a reflection of your wisdom. Your wisdom, or the lack thereof, is on display. It's on display. Your wisdom is on display. The decisions you make, the decisions I make, can be seen. Knowledge is knowing how to do something. Wisdom is knowing when to do it, and more than that, actually doing it. What good is the wisdom to do something and you decide not to do it? It's not wisdom at all. It has... Wisdom has nothing to do with not using it. Wisdom has to do with using it. Look at James 2, 18 and 19. He said, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your, your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the devil believes that. Even the demons of hell know that there is one God. My mother used to tell me when I was a kid. She said, there's a Bible story and a young king asked God for wisdom. So son, when you pray, ask God for wisdom. That really stuck to me. And I did. I used to ask God for wisdom, but I said, God, I can't figure out how you're going to do that because I cannot read. I, I couldn't read. I was in denial. I didn't. Nobody knew. Not even my mother didn't know how bad the problem was that I didn't know how to read. I tried to learn. 
And you know what's interesting? I went back, when I went to work for Tuolumne County Probation nine years ago, whatever it was, I had to produce my high school transcript. I'm like 60 years old at the time, you know? Are you kidding me? You want my high school transcript? They said, yeah. So I had to go all the way down to Lodi and go through the high school, and they had to dig through the archives and find them. They found them. I have them. And you know what? I was surprised. I had passing grades. And I thought, my gosh, I couldn't read. I couldn't read. And, and yet, yeah, I was taking the knucklehead classes, but I was getting through. I was getting by. I actually got a diploma. What an amazing thing for a young man that couldn't read. I couldn't read. One of the ways that wisdom is added to your life is through relationships. Go ahead and think of your life. Look back. Take an inner look at your life and think about how you got here. Think about the relationship, whether it be a hitchhiker, a teacher, your friends, your wives, your girlfriends, your aunts, your uncles, your brothers, your sisters. Wisdom is added through relationships, and we need godly relationships in our life. This is why it's so important to pay close attention to who you're interested in in having a relationship with. Who are they hanging out with? What kind of things do they talk about? Does their life have the kind of reflection you want others to see in you? You know, even Jesus, he had to grow up a little bit too. You guys remember this story in Luke chapter 2? This is where they lost him. They were heading back to Nazareth. And they were at the, at the feast in Jerusalem. And they were heading back. And they had a big entourage of people that were traveling. And all of a sudden they go, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? It's been two days. Where's Jesus? And they had to go back to Jerusalem. It says in verse 48, it says, So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I, and I sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to him, and I'm sure he said this because of his young age, Why do you seek me? Do you not know that I am about my father's business? <laughs> I wasn't there, but I'll bet you she took him by the ear. And she says, let me tell you a little bit of something about father's business. And she walked him right out of that place. Was he lying? No. Did he sin? No. Did he have a lack of wisdom? Yes. Yes, and an understanding of who he was and, and that he has to grow up into this thing who God has created him to be. Verse 49, he says, no, for verse 50, he says, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Verse 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. What do you guys think that means? He was paying attention to what mom and dad said. He was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in the favor of God and men. 
our relationships we have are, are so important. You people, you know, you got two beautiful girls back there, and you guys are about to have a beautiful big boy and wait for 15 years. And you're going to look at the kids that they're wanting to hang out with, and you're going to say, Christian, uh-uh, son, uh-uh. But it's a tough battle, and it's a place that, that I was at. And when I was a kid, I was in church with my parents, and we had a little youth group, and we all sat over in the corner, back corner of the church. And there was a kid in there, his name, he went by his father's last name at the time, his name was Michael Rose, my very best friend. And what a troublemaker he was. His dad was the worship leader. Tony wanted them guys. He was a worship leader, and Michael was, 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 I wanted to be just like him. <laughs> I wanted to be just like him. It was a relationship that I wanted to be like Michael. He was two years older than me, and he was as tough as nails, and he had kind of long hair, and, and had girlfriends, and was just everything about him. Even my friend Johnny, who started coming to church with us, it was me, Johnny, and Michael, and my mother, and my mom and dad threatened to leave the church if I didn't stop hanging out with these guys. They were two years older than me. And they, whoa, we fought. They said, you can't hang out with these guys. You can't, we'll go somewhere else. No, you can't go somewhere. No, we'll go somewhere else. So I, I had to appease them a little bit and stop sitting with them in church. But every time I got out of the house, we were together. We robbed a gas station together. I was 15. We didn't get any money, okay? We scared the guy to death. And I think the guy that attended, I think he took the money. Because he figured he could blame it on us. It was all for Michael, because Michael wanted to run away from home, and we were going to help him run away. So we had to get him money and I can remember hiding that night, scared to death. I'm not glorifying my sin. But God used it. He used every bit of it. And I asked God that night, hey, if you could help me get through this, you know, I'll, I'll quit smoking. It's 15, smoking cigarettes. Come on. That Sunday morning, unbeknownst to us, my friend Johnny told his girlfriend over the phone what we had done or attempted to do. Her father was on the other phone, listening. They pulled up to the, to the church. Michael had already been arrested. We didn't know it. They pulled up at a church on a Sunday morning. They had already picked up Johnny. He was in the back seat of the car. And Johnny pleaded, pleaded with the police officers, don't embarrass George's parents. Let me go in and get him. Pleaded with him. And he said, you go get their parents, his parents too. He said, okay. And Johnny went into the church upstairs. I was down in Sunday school downstairs. Came down and put handcuffs on me and took me away. In church... So I'm telling you, new parents, it can be a tough road in church. Relationships mean everything. And so this kind of relationship that I was having was so important to me. I wanted to be everything like Mike. I wanted to be like him. 
But after this little bout of being in juvenile hall, I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ, and Mike left, and Johnny went on to do whatever he was going to do, and I got heavily involved in the church, as I should. I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ. Years later, we, we thought that there was this great shootout that was done by uh, bikers in a bar in Arizona. And we knew that Michael was there. And I thought that he was one of the deceased. Years later, because he went on to Arizona and, and he became a hell's angel and rode with the gypsy laurels and the top hatters and, and all the, the gangs he was doing, everything that that he could do, from drugs to women to whatever. He found the Lord. The Lord found him. And he came back to Lodi many years later. By now, I'm living up in, in a way in Groveland, hiding, actually. And my mother heard through a testimony in the church that Michael had committed his life to Jesus Christ, and he's now a motorcycle missionary. Serving God and going into the Hell's Angel Clubs and going into all these places, serving God. And my mother began to pray. She said, he'll listen to him, Michael. And she never told me. She never called Michael or Michael's mother. She never said anything. She just went home and prayed. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one. You have to send him. Send him. And she continued to pray to send him. And one day, he walked into my motorcycle shop. It was like seeing a dead man walking. I couldn't believe my eyes. And he threw his arms around me and he said, how are you? And I said, I can't, you're alive. And he said, yes, I'm alive. I'm on fire for Jesus Christ. I'm serving God. I'm a motorcycle missionary. I said, awesome. Don't tell me about it. If I want to hear anything about Jesus, I'll go talk to my mom. You can just keep your Jesus in your hip pocket. He said, I will. And he committed. God spoke to him that day and said, you're going to lead him back to me. And he did. For three years, he committed his life to serving me. Me. I, I couldn't believe it. Until one day, one day I made mention that all I want is to have what you have. And I can't believe I went on this, down this road. Let's get back to the message. God will take everything that you've ever experienced, every bad thing that you've ever done, and he will use it for his glory. The key is that you have a forgiving heart. And you're willing to forgive those who have hurt you. God can work through your suffering and accomplish the purposes in your life. Ultimately, God is in control, and he allows good and bad things in life to happen. And we can trust him to work all things together for the good of those who love him. You can see that in Romans 28. This understanding enabled people in Scripture to forgive their offenders. Their response freed them and their destructive consequences and bitterness and allowed them to receive the blessings 
You know, as Jesus was, it said in the Bible that he increased in wisdom and stature. I'm sure that meant that he was getting taller, but I am sure that God wasn't concerned about how tall he was getting. It was his worldview. It was what people were seeing in him. It was the stature in God. His world, his life was reflecting his wisdom that God had placed in him. And they could see it and people were drawn to it. It's like seeing a a building lot. And you know that they're going to build something there. You just don't know what it is. I'll tell you how you can determine. You can figure out your first guess of what they're going to build is the size of the equipment they bring to move the dirt. You know, if it's just a monster tractor that's going to dig out a giant hole, they're going to build something pretty tall. A little guy with a trencher out there, and he's probably just building a single-family home. You can kind of tell by the type of equipment, and that's how people can tell when they see us. What are you doing? Are you going to church? Are you serving God? What does your building lot look like? Can people tell? All of us as Christians are in some place of development. People can see it in our reflection. And we all struggle with our inner self. Whether you realize it or not, we all wrestle with God. We all wrestle with God. Adam and Eve, they were lied to, they were deceived to by by this snake, this Satan that came and talked and started whispering in their ear. And they, they thought that God was holding something back. They thought that that they could be like God, and they were. They just couldn't see it. The problem is, they thought. Our thinking always gets us, and it's our wrestling with our thoughts over God's word or not God's word. It's been easy over the years for preachers to pick on Jacob because, well, there's a story right there in the Bible that Jacob wrestled with God, and we can all read it in Genesis 32. Preachers like to say he was a deceiver, he was... He was a con man, a liar, a cheater. Wow, sounds a lot like me. Before I came to Christ. And now look at the family that he came from. Abraham and Sarah, God's chosen man and woman to populate the nations on earth. Abraham and Sarah, they had little Isaac. And he grew up and he married Rebekah. What a great love story that is. You should read it. And it orchestrated, God orchestrated these two meeting. But there was a problem. And the problem was that Rebecca was barren, much like Sarah. So they prayed. They prayed and, and inquired of the Lord and said, we, we need a child if we're going to populate the earth. And in Genesis 25, 23, Not only did God provide for them and open her womb, she put twins in there. But these two were battling from the very very conception. They were battling. She was having so much trouble with this pregnancy. These two were fighting inside of me. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people. That means they're going to be completely different. Shall be separated from thy bowels. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older, elder, shall serve the younger. Which is totally against their 
historical heritage. And I'm just going to give you the highlights. I'm going to blow through this as fast as I can because you need this. Genesis 25, verses 24, it says, So when her days were filled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red and was like a hairy garment all over. And they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. They were even fighting on the way out. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore these two boys. Verse 27, so the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac, Isaac loved Esau because he loved to eat the game that Esau would go get and cook for him. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Can you guys see the dysfunctionality here? This is not normal. This is not normal that, you know, the father would love this, this one, the favorite, and the mother would love that one. There, there's a problem here. These boys were at each other within the womb. And Isaac loved one more than the other, and the mother did the same thing. This is not healthy, and it's not normal. Well, Pastor, why are you telling us a story like this? Well, first, because it's the truth. It's in the Word. Secondly, so that you will see and know that your dysfunctional family, your dysfunctional family can be used by God. All of it can be used by God. God uses the dysfunction in our lives. So many people think today that my family is just too messed up to do any good to God or for the church, and that's a lie from the pit of hell. God uses the messed up and the dysfunctional. That's why I'm standing here today in front of you. Because I'm very dysfunctional. Not anymore, praise God, not what God has done for me in my life but I was about as dysfunctional as I could get. Moving on, Isaac now gets old. Years have gone by. Rebecca, his beautiful wife, the mom, she overhears Isaac tell Esau to go kill his favorite game and cook it for him, and he would give him the family blessing. And you have to understand, in their heritage, in their culture, the family blessing was everything. The older we get, two-thirds of all the valuables that the, that the family has, and the blessing is everything. If one gets it, that's it. It's, it's only, it only happens one time. And so Rebecca tells Jacob, because now Esau goes out hunting. He's got, he's got to go find that special rabbit to kill it. He's got to skin it and clean it and bring it back and cook it and prepare it for his dad to eat. Then the dad was going to put his blessing upon him. So Rebecca hears this and says, hey, hey, Jacob, I can tell you how to get your dad's blessing. All you got to do is put some fur over your arm so you feel hairy like your brother. Try to make your brother, your voice sound like his Esau. He, I mean, Jacob, he, who am I talking? Abraham? Isaac, thank you, thank you. Isaac couldn't see. There's too many names flying around in my head. He couldn't see. She goes, I'll cook him up some rabbit. It'll be really good. I've got it in the fridge. Go ahead and cook it up. And Jacob, being a knucklehead that he is, he says, okay, mom, let's do it. So he does it. And Isaac can tell there's something wrong. He says, you don't, you, you don't sound like Jacob. 
I mean, you don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. What is going on? Oh, this is Esau. And he went ahead and put the blessing upon him. All the family riches, all that he had, the blessing, he put it on to Jacob. But then he afterwards he goes and tells mom, okay, it worked. I got the blessing. Well, now you got to run because <laughs> Esau knows how to kill. And uh, son, he's going to come after you. You got to go. But I don't want you to go over there and marry any of these heathen women. I want you to go over there to where my brother is and marry one of his daughters. And God orchestrated that. And Jacob went. 20 years goes by. And he gets hooked up with this guy named Laban, which happens to be just as big a crook and maybe a bigger shyster than Jacob was. He wanted to marry Rebekah. That's who he fell in love with. That's who God placed before him. But Laban said, no, nah, I'm going to give him Leah, his sister. And he conned Jacob into working another seven years. He wound up working there for over 14 years for these now two wives that he had. Meanwhile, he has lots of kids. His family is growing. He hires servants. God showed him through an angel how to multiply the sheep. And he made a deal with Laban. I'll take all the speckled sheep. And through a miracle, all the sheep started being produced by speckled. So now Jacob decides he's going to leave. He's going to leave and he's going to head back. God speaks to him and says, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. And as he was traveling along, Laban starts thinking about, wait a minute, he's taking all the sheep, all the goats, all my grandkids, my daughters. He's taking everybody. He got ticked. And he starts chasing after Jacob. And you got to understand, Jacob wasn't sure if Laban wasn't going to kill him. And so he caught up to him, and they had a big powwow, and they come to an agreement. And they made some sort of covenant. You can read it. Hey, if you let me see my grandkids, and you know, don't keep me from them, that kind of thing, I'll let you live. Something. But then an angel came as he was leaving again and said, By the way, Jacob, Esau's coming. He's on the other side of the river. He's got 400 men with him. Angels are kind of left with that. That's what the Bible tells us. That he's coming. He didn't say whether he had a forgiving heart. He didn't say. He figures he's coming to kill him with 400 mighty men. And Jacob, being the weasel that he is, he sends all his wives out, all the kids, all the servants. He sends them all out of heaven. Figures if you're going to kill him, you've got to kill all them before he gets to me. It's kind of a sad story. So he sends them all across the river. And Jacob stays on this side of the river for the night. Now, I don't know what his thinking was. Thinking, well, if Esau shows up at night and wipes them all out, I have opportunity to get away. What was his thinking? I don't know. But he stays on this side. And the Lord comes and sees him. Comes and sees him in the night. Go to Genesis 32, 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, 
he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, God, is wrestling with him and said, let me go before the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. How else? This tells you for sure that Jacob knew who he was wrestling with. I am not going to let you go unless you, unless you bless me. Now, if you're trying to figure out how God manifested himself, this is Jesus. He come down to this earth and wrestles with Jacob and wrestles with him all night long and finally touches his hip, hurts him. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this is what Jesus said to him. This is what God said to him. It's so profound. What is your name? Do you think God knew who he's wrestling? What is your name? What is your name? And Jacob answered him. He answered him. He said, I'm Jacob. Jacob didn't lie. Jacob is saying, I am all those things that they say that I am. I am the liar, the cheater, the deceiver. I'm Jacob. I'm the one. I'm the one who did all these things. He's wrestling with God. And God says, what's your name? He could have said Esau. He could have said anything. I'm sure he used aliases throughout his life, trying to hide who he was. But he didn't. He said, I'm Jacob. And God said to him, you shall no longer be called Jacob. Why? Because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And have prevailed. We got to understand we're struggling with God and we just got to hang on. You just hang on to God and say, God, I am not letting you go. I am not letting go until you bless me. Why? Because I'm a child of the most high God. We have to know who we are in him. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. It shall be Israel. Then, then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name. And God said to him, why is it you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. It's interesting that the writer of this story didn't give us what the blessing was. Normally you see it in the Bible when there's a blessing. You know, uh, when Isaac blessed uh, Jacob, he spelled out the blessing of what he was getting. But we just got that he was blessed there. But this was God's man who was going to run the nation of Israel, who was going to form it. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel. For I have seen God's God face to face and my life is preserved. See, he knew he knew that what was said by Moses, that no one, no one can see the face of God. 
But Jacob here wrestled with God. So as he crossed over the Pinnell, the sun rose. And he limped on his hip. <laughs> really good preachers typically limp a little bit. Because there's something in their life that God had to touch. There's something in my life that God had to get to that, get to me, to touch me, to where I would finally submit and say, God, it's all you. It's all you. It's not me anymore. We got to stop wrestling with God and know who we are in God. It's so important that we get this. Who are you? What is your name? You are a child of the Most High God. Bond, sir. I heard that this morning and a little bit, what little bit I was in Tim's class. I'm a bond, sir. Because I choose, I give myself to God. God, I am a bond servant. I am yours. I am yours. That's what we have to do. And we need to look to our inner self and see the things and the areas that we need to clean up. If you need to start taking care of things better at home, then take care of them. Yeah, I, I'm a type A. I, I'm, I'm a freak. I, I, I have to clean everything. We went for a nice little drive yesterday afternoon. We went up to Lions Lake because I wanted to see what the lake looked like. Thinking about maybe going up there fishing somewhere. I got my truck so cotton-pick and dirty I couldn't go home until we went to the car wash. I, I, I can't. I can't look out in the driveway as a city and looking at a dirty truck. I, it's just me. But it's, it's also a reflection of me. Of who we are. I take pride in taking care of things and, and, and you know, I have to be reminded once in a while to put the toilet seat down. And I, and I adhere, don't I, for the most part? I try to remember. I was on vacation, she went away for a week, I didn't have to touch that thing. Our, our lives, our lives are a reflection of who we are. What is your life reflecting? What do people, do people see Jesus in you? Do they know that you're a Christian? Or do they take one look at, at you and your stuff and go, dude, I don't know what you're doing, but I don't want any part of it. I mean, it matters how we live, how we take care of our things that God has blessed us with. It matters. It's all part of our reflection of our inner self. And we give that to God and give God the glory. Amen?